You're listening to TIP. In today's episode, I'm joined by Colin Roach. As I'm sure avid listeners would know by now, Colin is one of the most insightful thinkers on macro and building right portfolio. In today's episode, we talk about whether central bankers should be elected, how to optimize for independence and sleeping well at night, and everything else in between. Colin is such a wealth of knowledge, and you just know that you'll be in good company and get a more nuanced view of financial markets whenever you're around him. So without further ado, here is our conversation. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and I'm here with Colin Rhodes. Colin, how are you? I'm doing great, Stig. It's always great to be back. So, Colin, let's just jump right into it. One of our favorite topics, and I'm sure the listener would know this, given that you've been a guest here so many times. One of the favorite topics that we, we almost always talk about is inflation. And this episode will be no different for the first part of the interview. So I was going for a walk with my wife the other day, and my wife told me about this rapper, famous rapper called Cardi B. This is my way of easing into a question I clearly know, know nothing about. But anyways, Cardi B is a rapper, and she's rapping about lettuce costing up to $7, which just, you know, it just sounds crazy. And that led my wife and I to talk about the Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index, also called PCE. Now, my wife's an economist by trade, so that transition probably isn't as odd as it might sound to you out there. But anyways, CPI, on the other hand, is often referred to as headline inflation. That's, you know, that's what you read about in the newspapers. That is reweighted every two years, whereas PCE is reweighted to reflect changing custom consumption patterns. And you can argue that CPE is a more accurate snapshot on how people spend their money. And and really to expand on Cardi B's point here, you would say that CPI is, that assumes that people continues to buy $7 lettuce, whereas PCE would then allow for people to substitute that with more reasonable priced uh, veggies. Now, with all of that said, Colin, could you talk to us about PCE that we don't hear as much about and what that tells us about the current purchasing power of the American consumer? Yeah, this is a a good topic to go over because I think that you know a lot of people tend to discuss inflation and just the headline CPI and not really dig down into the guts of why there are all these different metrics and why we we do things like strip out, for instance, food and energy to create what is called the core indices for a lot of these inflation measures. And I think that I think the best way to look at this and the reason why there are all these different indicators and some of them are stripped out of like more volatile instruments is that I think economists and especially the Federal Reserve, they're just trying to get a better gauge of what is going on with trend inflation. And so, you know, a lot of having a lot of different indices, I think, provides a a more useful data set to look at. It's not that, you know, I don't like to think of one as necessarily being better than the other or one being the true indicator versus one not being a, a true indicator. I like to think of them all as sort of being, you know, complementary to each other. And they all kind of give us a, a different bit of information about what's going on with inflation. But the the big kicker, like you said, with PCE versus CPI is that 
consumer price index is really it's a household survey basically so they're trying to get a survey of what is really only urban consumers and what their price basket looks like on it used to be a biennial basis that i think they they just moved it to january 2023 i think they just moved it to they're updating it annually so it's still though it's not necessarily the basket is sort of fixed at an annual basket rather than the PCE actually updates the basket every month. And so like you were alluding to what this does and the advantage of the PCE there with that is that this allows for what's called substitution effects in the way that consumers actually perceive these things. So for instance, like right now, eggs are crazy expensive because there's a, there's a shortage of eggs. And so like this is a, a Actually, a, a good real time example. My, I have a one year old and a two and a half year old, and they love, love, love waffles. So I make waffles every Sunday for the whole week. And in the last few weeks, it, weirdly, I have chickens that haven't been laying because it's the winter time here in San Diego and they lose all their feathers. So I won't get into all that nonsense about how chickens work. But, anyways, I know that the price of eggs is crazy high. And so but rather than making the waffles with eggs, I'm using bananas. So you can substitute bananas out for eggs. And so that's what I've been doing. So I'm literally, there's this substitution effect in the way that I'm making waffles because I see the price of eggs and I'm just substituting something that is you know, similarly delicious inside of a, this, this meal, but I'm actually buying something that is less expensive. And so the PCE actually updates monthly and it actually accounts for that. And so the difference that's actually much more substantial in the PCE versus the CPI is that the PCE is really a business-based index. They're, they're surveying businesses to get the cost of goods and services. And the advantage of that is that you actually end up getting a broader price index because there's a lot of things that businesses actually pay for on behalf of consumers. And the biggie there is actually healthcare. So businesses in the healthcare market tend to go out and actually they're bidding for you know the cost of insurance on behalf of consumers. So like if you have a you know a healthcare package through your employer, your employer is actually the one that is paying for that. And so you you're getting a broader subset of all of these different things. And the one of the things that the the PCE ends up doing as a result of this, because it's such a broader index, you end up getting I think a, a lesser effect from a lot of the different items. So for instance. Shelter in the CPI is like 35% of the index versus in the PCE, shelter is only like 20% of the index. And so one of the ways that I like to think about all this stuff is like, think of it like from the stock market perspective. Like, why do we have the Dow Jones index and the Standard & Poor's 500 index and the Wilshire 5000 index and the NASDAQ 100 index? Well, all of these indices provide us with a price of different but similar things. And so there are different ways of viewing what are the price trends going on inside of the stock market. And all of that information, it just provides us with a better idea of what is going on with the broader stock market. And the, the same thing is true here with these consumer price indices, where we're looking at all these things and economists are just trying to get a, an idea of what are all the different inflation trends that are going on with the underlying data. And so PCE is a nice complement to CPI and economists will then, you know, strip out food and energy from these two indices to get a better idea of, you know, for instance, is oil providing a an outsized impact on the overall index because 
of something silly like, you know, the Saudi Arabians just decide to stop, you know, pumping oil or whatever. And all of a sudden the price of oil goes up crazily and creates this huge outlier impact on the overall inflation rate that doesn't really reflect the underlying trends of consumers. And so all these things are kind of complements to each other. I wouldn't say one is necessarily better than the other, but they all kind of give us an idea of what are potential future inflation trends based on just looking at a lot of different types of, of indicators. And Colin, whenever we talk about inflation, we must also talk about central banks. One argument you often hear is that it's a problem that central bankers are not elected. And I read Gavin Jackson's new book, uh, Money in One Lesson, and he sees this differently. His take is it's more of a trade-off. So on the one hand, central bankers are independent governments. So for example, presidents are not supposed to tell them what to do beyond the dual mandate that they have about controlling inflation and also stabilizing the economy. And that insulates expert decision-making from political pressure, at least in theory. I'm sure some people would not whenever I say that we've seen presidents or presidential candidates wanting a low interest rate up to an election. Because short-term, that's good for unemployment and the economy, which is crucial in terms of winning the election. And I also think that if you ask most voters, would you like a low interest rate or a high interest rate? They were also, you know, they want a low interest rate. However, what Gavin Jackson, uh, going back to his argument, what he's talking about is that this is a trade-off because not having democratically elected central bankers comes at a cost of accountability and democratic control. So with all of that being said, do you think that central bankers should be elected? You know, this is an interesting question. I, you could get into the weeds on all sorts of debates. Like, is the Fed truly independent? Or, you know, the Fed likes to describe itself as independent within government. And obviously, there's lots of, with the Fed being directly in government and being influenced by politicians, there would obviously be lots of conflicts of interest. Like Trump for years was arguing that Jerome Powell was, you know, being too tight with, with monetary policy. And so, you know, whereas the Fed is looking, trying to look at things more objectively, more independently and saying, you know, like for instance, right now is a great example of an economy where the Fed is being very aggressive, really trying to, to cram down growth. They're trying to, they've literally said they're trying to increase the unemployment rate, which Obviously, no president wants to see that happen. But if the trade-off here is that you have to beat inflation by causing some unemployment, well, from the Fed's perspective, that's a battle they have to fight. And it's the, you know, you kind of have to have some casualties along the way is sort of the way that the Fed would view it, which might sound kind of crazy, but that's that's the trade-off there in the Fed's mind. And so, you know, being independent, I mean, gosh, I to be honest, I mean, I've always sort of said that the Fed shouldn't be run by human beings in the first place, that there should be basically an administrative staff that operates certain facets of the Fed, but that I have never loved the discretionary monetary policy side of everything where you get the, even these independent, very objective thinkers, you're obviously brilliant people, but people that are just as prone to mistakes as anybody else. And so you can have the smartest guys in the room, you know, doing very stupid things or just doing things that are, I think, you know, when it comes to setting interest rates, setting interest rates and predicting inflation is just incredibly difficult to do. And so having a discretionary approach to this, to me, has never really made a lot of sense. And I've always been more in favor of doing something that was a little more systematic, where the Fed was operating more like an algorithm when it comes to interest rates. And then 
you know, obviously there's some manual override that's required in certain environments or certainly with certain facets of the Fed's operations. But me personally, I mean, I, I wish that the Fed wasn't even manned by people. I wish there weren't, you know, 12 board members and a FOMC chief that were just talking about the economy and trying to predict things that in the macro economy are just virtually impossible to predict. But in terms of, of being elected versus not being elected, I think that the, the Fed is structured in a about as, I think, practical way as it could be in the present environment. Because what the Fed is really, their primary role is to operate as the independent regulator for the banking system and as a, really as a payment processor. That's their primary role. The, a lot of the stuff they do tangentially to that, like setting interest rates and quantitative easing, it gets a lot of press, but it's not really their primary role. They really are operating as like an independent regulator over the banking system for the most part. And they don't get enough credit for how good they are at that. They're, the Fed actually operates very seamlessly in meeting that objective. Where things get tricky is when they start getting involved in these discretionary changes in terms of changing their balance sheet and interest rates. And those are the sorts of things where I do think it's, I don't want to say counterproductive, but not, not a very efficient way to set policy. So at least the way it's structured now, though, they're able to be independent enough where like Powell has done a, he did a pretty good job in the last four years, you know, looking at certain presidents and saying, you know, I know you're very loud and influential, but I am going to stick to my guns here because I see the data and I'm trying to be objective. And so it's a flawed institution in the way that it's set up inherently, because I think that the institution itself just isn't able to actually achieve a lot of the things that's demanded from it. Like I've always said that the the Fed, even when they're fighting policy, they have extraordinarily blunt instruments. So even if these people, you know, if they were super objective, independent, you know, non-elected officials running the Fed, even in that environment, given the tools that they have, interest rates and things like balance sheet changes, they're very, very blunt instruments. So very ineffective, lagging sort of policies that don't have an immediate impact on the rate of inflation. And so it's very easy to look at this whole institution and be super critical because its structure is sort of inherently inefficient in the way that it's designed. But I don't know. I try to be somewhat forgiving of uh, of the people running it just because I know how hard it is to predict inflation and try to manage it given the tools that they have. So Colin, let's talk about the velocity of money and how that's related to inflation. And let's set the scene and look at the three actors. So you have money supply, production, and inflation. And let's say that money supply grows by 20% and production is only half of that, so 10%. What happens to inflation? You know, I love this debate because you get into a really nuanced discussion about really the key variable here is what is money? And Money in the modern economy is a really messy definition. So in a standard sort of textbook traditional sense, we would say that things that are, are really super liquid inside the banking system are money, things like cash and coins and bank reserves and bank deposits, really. Those are the things that were sort of traditionally thought of as money. And you know, I've always talked about how Certain financial assets have varying degrees of moneyness. And so you, 
even non-financial assets have a certain degree of moneyness, like uh, gold. Gold is money, but gold's moneyness is lower than that of a deposit in a modern monetary system in large part just because gold is you know, obviously very hard to transport. You can't walk into Walmart and put a block of gold on the, you know, the counter there and pay for anything. And so the moneyness of gold, even though it is absolutely a form of money, you could argue that the moneyness of gold is lower than that of a, of a bank deposit. But in terms of this debate, you get into things like, well, are treasury bills money? Are treasury bonds money? I would argue, you know, even stocks are money in a certain sense, in the sense that, you know, a lot of people get paid in stock options and, you know, corporations use their stock as cash in transactions and things like that. So there's a moneyness factor, even in things like, you know, traditional financial assets that we typically would never think of as money. But when you get into things like the equation of exchange and the velocity of money, you necessarily have to hammer down what is money. And so, for instance, in 2008, when the Fed expanded their balance sheet in a big way, you would argue that what the Fed was doing was they were taking treasury bonds out of the private sector and they were flooding the private sector with bank reserves and bank deposits. And so looking at the equation of exchange from that perspective, you would argue, well, this has got to cause inflation. But the problem is, is you, in, you instantly get into a debate about what is money there because was the treasury bonds moneyness more similar to deposits than a lot of people assume? Like I always like to describe quantitative easing as being a situation where the treasury bond is essentially a savings account. And what the Fed does is the Fed creates a checking account as a bank deposit and they remove a savings account from the private sector. And so from that perspective, when you describe it that way, and you ask yourself, well, does the consumer there that sold the bond, do they have more money now or do they have less money? And you, so you see, you get into this sort of semantic debate about moneyness and what is money. But the lesson coming out of the financial crisis for sure is that you know, adding more bank deposits, adding more reserves did not cause big inflation because that would be the obvious impact that you would expect from this. But then you have certain economists that will just look at the equation of exchange and say, well, no, inflation stayed low and growth stayed low, which means that the velocity of money simply went down. Because as a matter of simple arithmetic, that's the only way that the equation can balance out the way that it would. And whereas I would look at it and say, well, no, your definition of money never made any sense in the first place. And so even though you added what you're calling more money, well, you were really just exchanging two very similar instruments in terms of their moneyness. And so you could take this in a million different directions, but you get into this very interesting debate about what is money and moneyness and all these different things. And it's part of, this is part of what makes the prediction of inflation so difficult is that you get into a lot of the nuance. And when you get into the nuance of all this stuff, you start realizing, whoa, there's a lot more that goes into predicting inflation than something like just saying, you know, hey, money, more money leads to chasing you know, fewer or the same amount of goods and services, which leads to inflation. It's so much more complex than that. So speaking of complexity, Carlo, let me use that as a transition into my next question here. So central bankers' most effective tool to control inflation is to raise interest rates. But let's put a geopolitical filter over this. There is a feedback loop between globalization and interest rates. Could you please paint some color around 
that feedback loop and the implication of what we're seeing right now with the U.S., Europe, and China continuing to decouple? It's interesting because even as the world is is decoupling from the dollar increasingly, but this is a very very gradual exercise. So. I mean, the dollar is still by a huge margin the world's most important reserve currency. So there's lots of reserve currencies around the world. And reserve currency basically just means does a foreign government hold your currency in reserve for some strategic purpose? Or or do they end up inheriting lots of dollars for some strategic purpose or from a trade relationship? In the case of the United States, the rest of the world ends up with lots of dollars in large part because U.S. consumers just buy lots of stuff. And so foreigners are big sellers of things into the United States. So China, for instance, you know, they send us lots of paper plates, but we send them lots of dollars. So when you look at the Chinese balance sheet, you know, they necessarily end up holding lots of dollars in reserve just as a function of trade. And so the interesting thing with what's going on with you know, the current environment, especially, and dollars is that foreign countries don't just inherit lots of dollars, they actually borrow lots of dollars in large part because you know, the simplest example of, of something like this is that let's say that uh, a Saudi Arabian company wants to, you know, let's say they've discovered some oil and they want to go in and, and drill this new oil. Well, in a lot of times what they'll do there is they might hire a group of, of drill rig operators from Texas because the Texans have the best oil rig technology and they'll be flown in they'll they'll work as contractors for the Saudi Arabian government let's say and what what will happen a lot of the times is those contractors will say pay me in dollars we don't I don't want to be paid in a you know the riyadh or whatever the the local currency is I want to be paid in in my home currency and in a lot of those cases if the the government or that entity doesn't have dollars on hand they'll end up borrowing dollars and so and this is a huge, huge market. The dollar borrowing market, you know, what's commonly called the euro dollar market, is a huge, huge market. It's there aren't exact figures on it, but it's in the tens of trillions of dollars. And so this is a huge foreign market. And euro dollars for listeners is just basically any dollar denominated bank deposit in a foreign country. So any country that that has a a banking system where they basically are able to produce dollars denominated outside of the United States. Not so dollars in, in bank accounts held outside of the United States at foreign banks. And so the euro dollar market though is is hugely important in large part because not only is it extremely large, but it requires the Federal Reserve and US monetary policy to be accommodative to whatever is going on, not just in the domestic US economy, but whatever's going on in the foreign markets because when the Federal Reserve starts making dollars harder to obtain through interest rate policy and relative currency exchange rates, well, what happens there is that this all filters into the foreign economy. So in, a, in an environment like today, where the Fed is increasing rates, they're not just making dollars harder to get for domestic residents, they're tightening global monetary policy because they're making it more expensive for foreigners to also get dollars. And so there's this weird sort of knock-on effect where when the Fed tightens the United States because they're the dominant reserve currency issuer, they're actually tightening really the whole world. They're tightening, they're really putting the clamps on, on a lot of these foreign economies that rely on dollar funding markets. And so, you know, what is the knock-on effect there? Well, the knock-on effect you would expect to be, you know, lower growth eventually. And 
certainly you know the potential for a sort of like a credit event in foreign markets because as these especially as these foreign economies rely on starting to roll over a lot of this dollar denominated debt as the dollar becomes more expensive it gets harder and harder to do that and so there's a sort of unintended consequence of domestic interest rate policy because it has such a big impact not just on the the domestic dollar funding market but on the global dollar funding market Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So, Colin, having discussed the future, let's discuss the past and the present. After the housing bubble burst during the great financial crisis, Consumers found themselves saddled with too much debt, and one could argue that the U.S. economy was at the brink of a balance sheet recession. So perhaps our listeners haven't heard the expression before, balance sheet recession. Could you please talk a bit about what is that and why is it relevant for us to understand as consumers and also as investors? 
So balance sheet recession is a term coined by Richard Koo. And Koo's a macroeconomist who studied primarily the, the boom and bust that occurred in the Japanese economy during the, the big real estate and asset price boom in the late 90s and early 2000s. And a balance sheet recession is when there's really a disequilibrium, not just in asset prices, but in debt markets, where primarily consumers or businesses, or maybe both, have leveraged them up substantially. And they've become so over-levered relative to where asset prices are that when asset prices come down, they necessarily end up with basically upside-down balance sheets. So they don't have the equity, for instance, to support the amount of debt that they've incurred. And so what happens in that environment is that you get a forced deleveraging. And that forced deleveraging forces balance sheets to contract. And so that's why Ku calls it a balance sheet recession, is that you get this sort of inherent or natural process of balance sheet decline or shrinkage because consumers and households end up having to repay a lot of their debt as a function of just being over levered in the past. And so this typically coincides with big asset price booms. And it's always interesting to understand. I mean, I think it's, it's super interesting in the context of today's environment because you've had this sort of extraordinary boom in real estate around the world again. And you know, and you could argue that it's not as levered as it was, for instance, during the financial crisis, but it's still a really interesting and timely topic to look at in large part because the real estate market, especially the thing that I think that is sort of interesting and corollary to Japan in a lot of ways is that consumers have started using real estate more and more as a speculative instrument. And so the stock market has traditionally been the instrument that people would have, you know, say used some leverage on to get exposure to, you know, a certain price trend. And then, you know, as things typically get out of control, consumers oftentimes borrow more or households borrow more, corporations borrow more. And there's sort of this, you know, debt effect in the in the stock market and the corporate markets, obviously, where when you get a disequilibrium in prices and that the air comes out of that, you get a lot of volatility. Real estate has traditionally been much more stable in large part because people haven't treated that asset class as this sort of speculative instrument where they, they borrow against it just to try to actually earn a return on investment necessarily. In the last, really the last 20, 30 years, as the global economy has kind of grown, the real estate market has become a much more speculative instrument. And so there's a, a huge leverage effect in real estate inherently. And the thing that makes, makes this all interesting in the current environment is that if real estate is becoming a more volatile instrument because people are using it as a more speculative type of instrument, well, does that financialization in the economy create a lot more instability in the long run? Because do you have this very inherently fragile debt-based market that is tied to a much more volatile asset class? And, you know, the traditionally real estate has been very, very stable. And that's the thing that has made it, you know, such a good investment for a lot of people, but also made it a it hasn't created a lot of contagion risk in the economy traditionally because it's the asset price itself has been so much more stable relative to the amount of debt that is used to leverage that instrument. Whereas going forward, I think that the really sort of crazy thing is that you look at periods like the COVID boom and you have a 40% price increase in real estate. Well, 
it would take just a 25% decline to go back to where we were just two years ago in the United States. That's a huge move in the short term that in the long run does not look like a very big move. But what does that sort of volatility do to the underlying leverage effects and the the knock-on effects that real estate could potentially have? And so, yeah, as this instrument becomes more volatile, does the discussion around balance sheet recessions and the potential for sort of you know, more of a, a forced deleveraging in certain environments, does that become a more pertinent, more, a more common outcome as we kind of move forward? And my guess is yes, that, you know, I mean, I've kind of been of the view for a long time that, well, Japan is very unique demographically and economically. It is, it's in a lot of ways, it's almost like looking into the future, I think for a lot of the the global developed economy and i think that you know while we may not be on the cusp of like a you know a japanese style 1990s sort of deleveraging and uh and balance sheet recession i think that the dynamics of the balance sheet recession are much more important to understand today than they ever have been in large part because the future of the borrowing markets especially in the real estate market they look more and more japanese as time goes on you know, one of the things that's, that's also being debated these days is the 60-40 portfolio, so stocks and bonds allocation. And now that we're we're recording here at the very end of January, and a lot of economists are looking back at what happened in 2022. And, you know, if you go to, to business school, you know, you're, you're taught that stocks and bonds are inversely correlated, which is why you need to have both in your portfolio. And so, for example, in a recession, whenever stocks dive, the Fed will lower the interest rate, thereby increasing the value of your bonds. And if you look at last year in 2022, the 60-40 portfolio lost 16%. And just for this calculation, I use the S&P 500 and Bloomberg's US aggregate bond index. You can choose your own metrics, but it would more or less give you, give you the same thing. Now, why did it happen? And should we rewrite or should we write off the 60-40 portfolio as no longer working? Well, first of all, why did this happen last year? It happened in large part because of what the Fed did. I mean, the the Fed's very fast acting move in interest rate policy resulted in when interest rates go up, bond prices go down in the short term. And this also caused a lot of you know consternation for the stock market because people were worried increasingly that the Fed was going to move so aggressively that you know this would this would put a lot of pressure on the economy and ultimately that would feed back to corporate America and lower valuations. And so you had this sort of, you know, double whammy inside of a very short time horizon where, you know, over the course of an 18-month period as the Fed moved very quickly, this had a huge outsized impact on both asset classes, but I don't know, we we talked about this a little bit in the the last time we talked. I increasingly love to think of asset classes as being instruments that exist across very specific time horizons. So for instance, if you were buying treasury bills last year, you really didn't care what the Fed was doing. I mean, you were losing money in real terms, but you were just clipping a coupon that was based on a, let's say, a one-year instrument. You weren't losing any principal over that one-year time horizon. Whereas the aggregate bond market, something like AGG that you referenced, that thing is closer to like a six-year instrument when you actually look at the underlying, especially the duration, the interest rate sensitivity of the instrument. And so, yeah, is that thing sensitive to, to price changes inside of a one-year period? Sure it is. But in the, in the six to seven, eight-year time horizon, 
the likelihood of that instrument losing money is very, very low because the underlying will have all rolled over in that time horizon. So the stock market is an even longer duration instrument. I like to think of the stock market as being basically like an 18 or multi 18 year or multi-decade type of instrument. And so, you know, what is going to happen to that instrument inside of an 18 minute or 18 month time horizon? Boy, I mean, who knows? But over the course of an 18 year time horizon, the odds of you losing money on that instrument are very, very low because it's you know the the way that the underlying firms accrue their profits over that time horizon is very very stable actually when you look at it on a rolling sort of 18 year time horizon so in the scope of 6040 you know if you're if you're looking for more short term stability then yes the 6040 is absolutely inappropriate for you because the stock market is I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different things going on in 6040 that people don't talk about. So, for instance, in a 6040, 85% of the volatility comes from the 60% slice. And so, right off the bat, you're buying something that isn't, you know, Vanguard calls their 6040 a balanced index. It's not really a, when you look at it from in terms of where the risk is coming from, 6040 is not really that balanced. It's really way overbalanced to the stock market. And so, if you need something that, is going to dampen the volatility or reduce really the risk inside of that portfolio, you need something other than the 60 or the 40. You need instruments to complement it, whether that is treasury bills or something that is you know, uncorrelated like commodities or gold or whatever it might be. You need a complement to that to dampen the volatility. So it totally depends in the long run. If you've got time horizon, that is, I mean, when you look at a 60-40, if you blend the durations of all those instruments, you end up at something about 12 years. So when you buy a 60-40, I always tell people, you have to think of even that thing as though it's at least a decade-long type of instrument. And so looking at that thing and judging it based on one-year performance, to me, it's the equivalent of like buying a CD that pays you a one-time coupon at a 12-month you know, period and complaining about how the price doesn't change inside of a one-month period. It doesn't make any sense because the instrument is literally not designed to do that. And a 60-40 is designed functionally as a multi-decade instrument because its underlying instruments are multi-decade instruments. So it depends. It depends totally on the investor. When people say 60-40 is dead, that to me, is overreach. Because what they're really saying is that the stock and bond markets are dead in the long run. And that, to me, just mathematically, I mean, the bond market, for instance, unless you think every single instrument inside of a bond aggregate is going to default, well, it's just sort of silly to say that the bond market is dead because the bond market over the course of the next five or six years actually pays a very predictable coupon. The treasury bill market inside of you know something like that pays a very predictable coupon over certain very specific periods. And so none of this stuff is dead, but it does expose us to certain risks in the short term that people need to account for. And the bond market, even though it is a much lower risk instrument than the the stock market, it's not a zero risk instrument. So to me, we talk a lot about asset price movements over certain periods. We don't talk about time horizons enough. And to me, especially as I find myself getting older and whatnot, time is really, it's the essential ingredient in all of this stuff that we discuss. And we like to try to make the stock market operate as a short-term instrument. But the reality is that the stock market isn't a short-term instrument. And there's nothing you can do 
that will change that underlying operational fact. So it's all to me, it's all about time horizons. 60-40 is good for a longer time horizon. If you need more stability, it's probably it probably is dead for you. So I want to talk to you about the human mind and the biases that we have. And you know, we, we have this bias to extrapolate trends in financial markets. So if it's if it's going up, it's always go up. If it goes down, it's it will always go down. And I remember how sound investing was equated to to real estate before the great financial crisis. I I don't know if I was just like in the echo chamber at the time, but it seems like no one saw a problem about you know, just putting your money into real estate. And then after the great financial crisis, we slowly started to forget that real estate wasn't always a great investment. And then we sort of like went back to the, to the old narrative again, up to the recent crash. Billionaire Red Dalio argues that we have a problem separating the business cycle, which might be, I don't know, five, eight years, depending on how you want to define it. We have a problem separating that from, from the longer cycles because we experience those long cycles uh, too rarely. And I would say to my point before, even with the, with the shorter cycles, we also tend to forget what happened perhaps 10, 12 years ago. And most people just don't study financial history. Now, with all of that being said, which longer cycles should we pay attention to as investors going into 2023? In terms of you know, history and looking at the, the markets going forward, you know, this, is a, this is a really actually important question because I think that you know, like the other day I was uh, talking about on my uh, website, Pragmatic Capitalism, is the next 40 years of stock market performance going to look like the past 40 years? And you can look at the last 40 years and there were a lot of dynamics there that operated as tailwinds, especially in the United States, that are no longer necessarily going to be there. The big one, obviously, was interest rates falling. Interest rates falling for 40 years created this you know, the huge tailwind to the stock market that in the environment we're in now, obviously, interest rates just can't fall nearly as much as they did starting from the 1980 period. And so, the other biggie, I would argue, in the United States was the development of the, the technology markets, in especially the United States, where you know, the, sort of the big technology firms in the USA seemingly dominated a lot of the tech development. And I think that that's going to that's gonna mitigate or at least converge with a lot of especially foreign technology companies as time goes on. And so these two tailwinds are increasingly becoming sort of headwinds as, as we move through the next 40 years. But the the other biggie, you know, I was kind of alluding to this earlier, is that the the debt markets have completely changed. And so Dalio would argue there's a long-term debt cycle and a short-term debt cycle. And, you know, it's sort of weird to think of the economy in terms of cycles because the in the long run, you know, I think it's easy to look at things like they're like the market is sort of like a sine wave. And the market doesn't move exactly like a sine wave. The market really in the long run, if you look at things like even GDP growth, well, you won't find a lot of variance in long-term GDP growth. It actually just kind of looks like a steady, a steady line from bottom left to top right. But in the, in the short term, you have much clearer cyclicality, especially in the short term. And the, the big driver of that is not just, not just debt and borrowing and you know, these these sort of things that are related to creating what Dalio would call more of a long-term debt cycle. But really, I would argue a lot of it is, most of it probably is just behavior. People who, I mean, God, look at the last two years where people are you know, bidding up 
crazy assets like um, you know Bitcoin going to sixty seven thousand and AMC and GameStop and all these stocks that seemingly had no underlying fundamental basis for what they were doing. That you know, in an efficient market hypothesis world, these things shouldn't move the way they do, but they did, and a lot of them have stayed that way. I think in large part because the more behavioral aspects of a lot of these debates has become very, very clear that the markets are not nearly as efficient as someone like Gene Fama would argue. And that, you know, the sort of behavioralist, the, the Richard Thaler type views or the, the Robert Schiller type of views that human emotions and animal spirits drive so much of this stuff that it can lead people to do stupid things and actually result in stupid prices for much longer than people might expect. And so, in the short term, I think human behavior is hugely important to understand. When we look in terms of cyclicality, I mean, yeah, in the long run, markets will look very efficient. But in the, lo- in the short term, the, the way you get to an efficient looking long-term market is through lots of short-term behavioral mistakes in essence. And so that's the primary driver of these boom and bust cycles. And you know, right now, I think we're kind of in the middle of what is the, you know, the basically the decompression of like the irrational exuberance of the COVID boom. And we're kind of digesting that big asset price boom that occurred in the last few years. And that's all, that's, this is all a behavioral exercise where, you know, we're all grappling with what is the Fed doing in the short term and what are, you know, where are interest rates going to end up be? Where is inflation going to end up being in a couple of years? And this is all an exercise in, in basically us making our best guesses and trying to grapple with our emotions in the short term in the process of creating what looks like a relatively efficient long-term pricing market. So to me, you, know, you have to understand these big long-term sort of secular dynamics, like things like demographics. And I think it's very useful to, to use sort of a multi-tiered approach where you're looking at you know, what is the baseline long-term sort of secular trend in certain things like technology and globalization and demographics, these things that have huge, huge macroeconomic impacts but then also layer that in with something that is more short-term, like looking at human behavior and the way that behavior drives markets to sort of gyrate more than maybe they should be based on what a lot of the, the long-term demographic trends or, or you know, technology trends might expect things to look like. So it's difficult. You have to sort of, I think, understand the, the cyclicality of human behavior inside of the short-term relative to the longer term, more sort of secular trends that are more long term by nature. So Colin, shifting gears here, I can't help but tell a a quick and funny story about the 19th century. So this is about the Bank of England. And the Bank of England installed a weather vane to track trade winds. And why did they do that? Well, whenever they could tell whenever the wind allowed more ships to dock in London's ports. Because that could or and would affect the number of goods for sale, or if they carry gold, then the money supply. And I just kind of feel like that's a that's a funny story because continue talking about central banks and and making predictions and and how to act. Well, my next question is not about weather wanes, but about central bank interventions in general. And Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, plus in twenty twenty to use the central bank's QE program to tackle global warming. For example, one of the theories that were discussed was one could imagine excluding companies that were not green from their bond repurchase programs. So my question to you, and and I'll try not to make it too value-based, even though that's, I kind of feel like 
I've lost the battle already on that one. But my question to you is, should the central bank, other than the dual mandate of maximizing employment and stabilizing prices we already talked about, should they also have the mandate to fight global warming? Oh, gosh. You have to love a story where, I mean, what is more unpredictable than the weather? You know, there's a, you could joke that, you know, the only people who are worse at their job than economists are weathermen. And it's, that's not to knock on weather people, but the being predicting the weather is just hugely, hugely complex. So you can, you know, God, looking at like long term cycles and stuff, like, you know, people for years have been saying that, you know, California was going to run out of water. I'm watching California just get flooded away this year. So it's, you know, all this stuff is so hard to predict, especially in the short term. And you just, you have to die laughing looking at a group of economists trying to use the weather to then predict economic trends in the future. Like talk about creating an indicator that is just going to be complexly wrong in the long run, endlessly. So, you know, in terms of the whole ESG debate, the environmental sustainability governance debate, you know, should, how involved should governments be in this and how involved should especially central banks be? I mean, God, we talked about how blunt the the central bank's instruments are already. I mean, I think that using the balance sheet and interest rate policy and anything like that in a discretionary manner is already sort of misguided. So I think that adding a layer of sort of morality to it is even more misguided because, I mean, this is the interesting facet of this debate is that I always tell people that within the realms of legality, how do you argue morality on top of that? I mean, is it, you know, is a, is a company like ExxonMobil immoral? Well, you know, think of it from ExxonMobil's perspective. Well, ExxonMobil runs obviously big oil rigs that, you know, do damage to the, the climate or whatever. But Exxon also is one of becoming one of the greenest companies in the world. They're one of the biggest investors in green energies in the entire world. And so the natural transition for ExxonMobil if you're thinking strategically over the course of the next 20 years, is for, I'm sure Exxon wants to be a 100% green company. If that's where the world is going, if that's where technology trends are taking them, well, then Exxon is, you know, they're run by even remotely competent people. That's obviously where they're trying to take this whole business. But at the same time, the world doesn't move that fast. You can't just transition completely off of carbon and petroleum-based products and jump into you know, wind and solar automatically because the the technology just isn't there yet. We don't have everything in place to actually meet the demands of the world running solely based on these environmentally friendly technologies at this point. And so Exxon is necessarily making sort of a slow transition, but they are making a transition. But if you looked at that company from an ESG perspective, well, it's very weird because if you're building an ESG index, you might say, oh, well, Exxon doesn't qualify because they do too much carbon. But from my perspective, it's actually the opposite. It's no, you would, you actually should want to own ExxonMobil in an ESG portfolio because Exxon is one of the biggest investors in the whole environmentally friendly and climate change uh, perspective because they're the ones that are pouring tons of their cash coming in from the carbon business back into green energy-based uh, businesses, trying to be proactive. They want to survive, obviously. They know that oil is probably the thing of the past. And so they're trying to be proactive with this. And so to me, you know, having 
having the central bank use very blunt instruments to try to predict, you know, the future trend of whether Exxon is going to be an ESG friendly company to me is just, I don't know, seems like a recipe for disaster. It seems very misguided in large part because you get into this very subjective debate about morality that doesn't really make a lot of sense when you think about it. I mean, ExxonMobil, I don't think can be objectively called an immoral company just because they operate a business that is, you know, even though it's still very carbon based, you know, they're investing so much money into the climate change, you know, process going forward that I think you have to argue that they're also somewhat ESG friendly. So where do you come down on this debate? I mean, it's very, it just gets very subjective and messy. And I don't think that there's a, a real clean way to actually decipher whether a company is ESG friendly or not. I mean, with the exception of obviously some probably very sort of, you know, ugly companies that do exist. But on the whole, I think in the, in the realm of legality, it's very hard to start getting into a, a morality debate. And so, you know, my bottom line is that I, I, I don't mind governments nudging corporations in the right direction and, you know, creating, say, laws that incentivize long-term changes in the way that we think about things so that we don't just, you know, pollute the world in a sort of nonsensical way. But at the same time, I really don't like the whole ESG debate in large part because I just think it comes down to it, so many subjective narratives and, and values that I think when you think of things in the aggregate macroeconomic sense, you know, your vice is my value and vice versa. And you can't just say that, you know, just because, you know, one person's vice is this thing that that makes it immoral. Well, it's, is it legal? Yes, it's legal. So therefore, um, how can you just subjectively argue that you know there's it, it's immoral based on how you feel about the thing? I I don't know. I've never really understood the premise of ESG investing. To be honest, I've always sort of thought that it was more of a you know subjective morality play than anything else. It's a really nice sounding narrative that I don't think actually translates into um, necessarily positive change. And you see this actually. In a lot of Europe, you know, a lot of the energy policies have kind of come back to backfire in the last few years with the way that, you know, Russia now kind of has dominance over the energy markets in large part because we, you know, the Europeans failed to actually diversify across, you know, the existing subset of, of technologies that make a lot of sense and transition more slowly into, you know, more of these green friendly sorts of technologies. So, the world moves at a slower pace than people think, and t thinking in things in terms of you know this sort of cycles again. You know, we want the world to transition very quickly, and the reality is that you know the world just doesn't operate that way. And so we can kind of nudge things in a certain direction, but I don't think you can force it overnight. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. 
Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. Well, Colin, thank you for your, your thoughts on that. And uh, I wanted to transition into your recent blog post uh, where you quote Morgan Housel and his quote on risk is what you don't see. And I found that quote profound, but it also makes me think of the former Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. You know, he has this wonderful and insightful quote about known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And in Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money, Morgan talks about how he invests, including that he has no debt in his house. And he talks about how he acknowledges that it's a terrible financial decision if you have the perspective of, of optimizing for investment returns. Like that's, that's absolutely terrible not to have a mortgage. But he claims that he basically has uh, two objectives. The first one is independence, and the second is sleeping well at night. And I, I love that. I, I love the approach that he has, even though I should say for the record, I definitely have a mortgage in my, in my home, but I love it because as I get older and have a bit more money, I also value my time differently. And I just find those two things, independence and sleeping at night, increasingly important. And I also should say that independence to Morgan Housel and what I would like to bring into this conversation, it does not mean stop working. It doesn't mean like, going to the beach for the next 10 years and sipping a margarita, whatever. It means that you only work on what you like to do with mm -hmm. the people you like to do at times that you want to do and for long as you want to do. And you know, I, I can use this example here with, with you, Colin, as, as an example of that. At least, on, at least I won't speak for you, but at least, <laughs> at least here on my end. But knowing that risk is what we don't see and we have unknown unknowns, how can we build a portfolio? If I can see if I can type a bow around all of this, how can we build a portfolio with those two objectives in mind? So a portfolio that secures us independence, but also sleeping well at night. 
How can we even yeah. start to approach that? I know that's, I know I covered a lot of ground with that question. You know, I've started writing a lot about this. And I don't know if it's just the fact that I'm getting old and, you know, worried about dying now, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm just endlessly obsessed with time and optimizing for time. And, you know, I listened to this another, you know, I'm you know, pitching a podcast on a podcast, but the, you know, I listened to The Drive with Peter Adia and Bill Perkins the other day, and they were, Perkins wrote the book, Die With Zero, and he talks a lot about all of the issues that are kind of involved in this question and optimizing your life for time rather than, you know, we, we seem to optimize our lives in lots of other ways rather than thinking about them as being time optimized. And I love this concept inside of portfolio construction because I've spent my entire career optimizing portfolios for asset returns. And everyone in the entire industry does this. They basically what we do is we look at a, a big subset of asset classes. And mostly what we do is we run you know, expected future return analysis or we run back tests. And then we take, let's say, five to 10 instruments that create the optimized risk-adjusted return. And then you take those five, let's just say five asset classes, and you put them in your portfolio and that portfolio is the optimal risk-adjusted return portfolio, okay? What that portfolio does not do at all is it doesn't account for the concept of time. It does not optimize for time inside of that portfolio. So this risk-adjusted portfolio that is optimized for returns, well, that thing might be filled with, let's just say it's filled with super long-duration style instruments. Let's say it's filled with venture capital. It's filled with technology stocks. It's filled with long-term treasury bonds. It's filled with gold. And you've got all these instruments that are inherently very long-term instruments. All of those things, what they'll do across time is even if in the long term, they give you the most risk-optimized portfolio, so they're creating the, most, the best risk-adjusted returns, they don't necessarily help with the sleep well at night aspect of all of this. And so, for me, I've increasingly become just a huge advocate of what I've started calling all duration investing, where I actually go in and I'm looking at the time horizons over which certain instruments exist. And so, you know, Morgan's a great example. I, I know Morgan fairly well. And I know Morgan, Morgan, like me, holds way more cash than he probably ever should. And he does that because that's his sleep well bucket. And to me, you know, there's, what you're really doing there is when you hold cash, you hold what is an inherently short-term instrument. And the trade-off there is that you have nominal principal stability inside of a cash deposit account or something like a treasury bill, but you've, you're giving up the potential for much more long-term principal growth, basically. And so the stock market, you know, it, it's the exact opposite of cash in the sense that the stock market will give you great real returns in the long term. But the sacrifice or the trade-off there is that you're going to have a lot of overnight instability in that portfolio. And so to me, when you're building a portfolio that's giving you not only independence and helping you sleep all night, well, you have to really understand time and how it relates to the way that not only the way you think, but the way that you spend money, most importantly, because in terms of, you know, this is basically the way that a lot of big pensions think about this too, because pensions naturally pay out a lot of their, their investment returns over time. And so they have what's called a, an inherent asset liability matching process over which they exist because they, 
they want to have very long-term asset growth, but they necessarily have short-term liabilities that they have to pay out. I mean, they're almost like operating a, you know, a 4% withdrawal rate every year or something like that. And they have to have a certain degree of liquidity. The pension fund operates like a retiree to a large degree. And so you need liquidity inside of that portfolio to complement your long-term growth. And so pensions end up inherently having to think across very specific time horizons. And I think a lot of independent retail investors don't do that. They think of what's the best way to generate the highest returns in the most efficient way without a lot of downside volatility. And that process doesn't necessarily involve thinking in terms of time horizons. And I think that when you come at it from the opposite angle, where you start attacking the equation from the liability side, and especially from the time horizon side, well, you accept a lot of the sort of trade-offs that exist where you can't sleep well and have a pure 100% stock market portfolio because the stock market won't help you sleep well at night because the stock market's going to move 1%. So that's the big kicker for me within the, the context of this debate. And you know the, the related topic to this with FIRE and the, the financial independence retire early movement is similar in the sense that a lot of people will in the especially in the fire movement i think end up creating very very aggressive portfolios because they necessarily need to take more risk in the long term because they're going to necessarily lose their source of primary income because their the whole goal is to retire early of course and so they almost end up necessarily having to take more risk in the long run than they might otherwise because the real fixed income asset that they own, their job is going to go away sooner than it will for the average person, which in a weird way, it actually creates a lot more potential financial instability because especially as you retire, you typically end up needing a portfolio that is actually lower risk because you start having to meet these withdrawals. And so you create your own sort of asset liability mismatch inside of that perspective that I think creates a lot of risk. It's one of the reasons why I'm not a huge fan of. I love a lot, all the principles of the the fire movement. You know the the idea of creating financial independence and saving a lot of your income, trying to optimize your income to generate a high income, and then basically just plowing the money into low cost index funds. I think all of that is brilliant. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the retire early part, in large part, not just because I think you can create this. Uh, portfolio imbalance that I was just alluding to. But the, the whole retire early mentality to me sometimes, it creates a lot of risk where I see people that retire, they oftentimes lose their sense of purpose. And I think that's the bigger behavioral risk with the FIRE movement is that people who oftentimes transition into retirement struggle with what is their purpose in life now? Because they've spent you know, 30, 40 years where their purpose was their work to a large degree. And I don't know. I'm a bigger fan of sort of easing into it or transitioning into into a, a retirement of sorts where you're maybe never fully retired or you still maintain a certain sense of purpose doing things for other people that is providing value and still maintaining an income of some sort that you know doesn't leave you being a slave to a corporation, but helps you ease into a, a less rigorous employment process where you're still technically retiring, but still maintaining a sense of purpose to a large degree. That's interesting. And, and I, I wanted to, to continue along those lines about this new generation of investors, whether they're, they're in five movement or, or not. 
You know, I, I read Redelio's book uh, quite a few times. Uh, Principles, and he talks about how he lost all of his money whenever he started his finance career, and he was 32 whenever he incorrectly predicted a, a huge crash in 1982, and it got so bad that he had to borrow four thousand dollars from his dad to support his growing family. And Delio says that looking back, it was the best thing that could happen to him because it was just it was crucial in terms of of what he learned about about diversification and as a building block to how he later grew his wealth to be one of the the wealthiest people on the planet. And I come from a place where different generations experience different things in the financial markets and therefore have a financial uh, and therefore have a different realities. And today you have a new generation of investors. Who might have read about the financial crisis in two thousand and eight, but haven't experienced a prolonged, painful recession? You know, they might have experienced the COVID crisis, and that came with with some painful social costs. But from a financial mag perspective, it really can't be compared to what happened two thousand and eight or or the ones before. You know, what what happened? You know, you you had a lot of money printing, and you had a bunch of fun stuff going on. You had a lot of subsidies. It wasn't wasn't really like a A recession like what you've seen in the past. Now, this new generation of investors they might have experienced a, a recent bear market uh, in last year and are perhaps staring into a recession. Perhaps not, depending on how you want to define it. But they really haven't really felt the pain that other generations have. So, I guess my question to you is: Which blind spots? Would you think?、Uh, would you say that this new generation of investors have, and perhaps using yourself an, as an example, coming from another generation, where do you think you have blind spots? Which I know is paradox in itself for for me to ask about. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because going back to the discussion about you know behavioral biases and especially you know behavioral cycles and the way that human emotions impact all of this, well. You know, this is always the variable that you can never eliminate. So, no matter how efficient the markets might become, there are always facets of all of this that are inefficient because all of the participants are inherently inefficient behaviorally. And so, even in the case of someone like me, who you know, I've I haven't been around forever, but I've been I've been I've lived through now, you know. Gosh, I mean, three, four pretty big bear markets that shaped me in a lot of ways, and I've seen though the the way that a you know not just a persistent sort of grind like the early two thousands can wear on you, but the you know that was for people listening. I mean, that was basically three years of the stock market just kind of ticking lower, you know, every single month basically, and that's you know, it was a grind. It just it. It was only three years, but it felt like twenty years, just because it it seemed to never end. And so it, that was very different, though, from the financial crisis, where the financial crisis was was really, I mean, it was half as long, but it was twice as painful in large part because, I mean, God, in in February, March of two thousand and nine, it really felt like the wheels were coming off of the financial system. And it was a really frightening environment in a way that was very, very different from the more drawn out, prolonged sort of 2002 environment. But you know, th- then again, looking through history, you know, like I never lived through the 1970s. The 70s were a totally different type of grind. Where I've read a lot of the economic history of that,、um, going back even further, you know, looking at like the the post war period there, the the big booms and busts that occurred in the you know across the war period. God, if you lived in Europe, it was a You know, in certain economies, got totally decimated. Go back and look at a 
you know, a, a picture of the, the German stock market back in, in the 40s. It's unbelievable to see the way that it sort of boomed when it looked like they were winning the war and then everything just, you know, the rug got pulled out of them as soon as they started to lose the war. You can read about all that stuff, but you can never actually experience it until you really experience it. And you never know how you're going to respond until you actually are in the thick of it. And so, yeah, I mean, looking at even someone like me, I might be more behaviorally robust to market gyrations than, say, someone who's 20 years old and fresh, you know, on Wall Street or something. But we're both going to be challenged across environments in very similar ways as we navigate all of this. And I still, I mean, even in, you know, periods like, gosh, March 2020 or April 2020, I mean, I remember all that stuff and remember seeing the stock market down 35%. And when you're in that environment, even if you're like a seasoned professional, you can find yourself in that environment and say, this feels different. You know, and it's actually interesting thinking of people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. They were basically saying that at the time that, you know, Buffett for like the first time in, I think maybe forever was not just gobbling up every company in the world back then. I think in large part because the pandemic was so weird that you look at an environment like that and you say, this, this is different. There's a real practical reason why the market is down 35%. And you need to ask yourself in that environment, is it different this time? And I think that felt in a lot of ways like it was different at the time, which is that's the thing that makes investing so behaviorally challenging is that when you're in the throes of a bear market like that, it always feels different. There's always a rationale for what's going on and it makes sense in the context of that. And then the future changes and people get back to you know living their lives and producing things and stuff in the long run and you know everything kind of plays out you know more optimistically than I think we typically tend to, to think in the short term. But that's the behavioral challenge of, of thinking in terms of what are the blind spots and, and risk is, you know, as Warren said before, risk is, is what we don't know. And so a risk is what you can't see. And there are always going to be things in the future that we, we can't see or haven't seen. And so behaviorally, even being someone of a newer generation, I think you have to sort of you have to live through these things to sort of become, I guess, you know, Nassim Taleb would say it's becoming anti-fragile to this sort of stuff, that you have to sort of live through the tough periods to, you know, become tougher, I guess it is. And that's the only way to do that is to actually experience it and find out, you know, how are you going to actually experience it? One of the, the great things about being young and not having a lot of money is that I mean, like I lost percentage wise, I lost huge amounts of money in the 2000 downturn. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was learning a lot about myself behaviorally and what that, you know, the way that I would actually experience all of that and the way that I would actually navigate it. And now I'm in a position where I'm much better off financially. And, you know, interestingly, I'm. I don't have the time though to worry about all of this stuff in the same way that I did back then where I could lose a lot of money back then percentage wise and it didn't matter because I had time on my side whereas now it's kind of the opposite now I've got the money but now I don't have the time and so it's a very different equation where I'm naturally taking less risk you know even than I probably should be because in large part because the the future is so uncertain for me and so I have more information but because my time horizon is compressed, it's a whole different risk dynamic. So 
But yeah, for young people, I mean, gosh, I don't know. A lot of them, uh, I mean, they might have tougher skin than we do because they they, they lived through, they're so involved in the crypto stuff that, uh, you know, they've lived through all the gyrations of that in a way that a lot of the old sort of traditional finance people shunned it off and, uh, you know, didn't experience that in the same way. So they, I don't know. I think the younger generations are going to be more resilient than maybe we think. And, you know, they'll evolve the same way that we all will through financial markets, ups and downs and booms and busts. But in the long run, that's the equation that or the, the variable in the equation that you can never remove is that humans are irrational and inefficient. And this cycle always continues in large part because you always have fresh entrance into this dynamic system that necessarily results in people behaving badly at times. You know, it's, it's interesting that you said about, you know, the, the young generation and, and how they might be more resilient because a lot of them invested in crypto. And, you know, you've seen the swings in crypto and you, you compare them to the stock market. I was still in school whenever we had the great financial crisis. And I didn't, didn't really experience it on, on like, I, I, I saw the news and all I, but you know, it's, it's very different whenever you have skin in the game and whenever you don't, you know, you have all these play money portfolios like, oh, build this and like, sure, I, I, I encourage people to do it if they want to, but they should just know that if you lose $100,000 or 10000 whatever the number it is, it's just very different if it's play money or your own money, especially as you get older and might get more responsibilities. But I, I remember whenever I was a student playing poker and, you know, in, in that game, if you play No Limit Hold'em, like you, you're losing your shirt if you don't know what you're doing. So coming into the stock market after upon graduation, starting to make a bit of money and put it into the stock market, like whenever CNBC was talking about, you know, minus 3%, whatever, and it was just, was crazy. It's like, yeah, but you know, playing poker is like, you're, you're, you lose all your money or you're up like 300% or whatnot. And so I, I just wanted to, to paint some color around that. I, I didn't think about it like that. I more thought about it as the young generation have mainly seen things go up and they might be in for a shock because that's just not the way it is in the stock market. I haven't, I haven't considered the whole crypto piece of it. And who knows whether it's good or bad that they might be more resilient and, and are used to see things drop by, I don't know, 50% or whatnot. I spend so much of my time thinking about what are the outlier risks that are going to you know hurt portfolios and cause people to potentially overreact to certain things and I mean pandemic pandemic was not on my bingo card for <laughs> for my life <laughs> so you know you never know i think that's one of the big lessons about the the pandemic is that you really don't know what's coming down the pike here and so you have to build a portfolio that is resilient to all of these potential outcomes. It's why I mean I've become such a big advocate of all weather investing and and what I call all duration investing because when you build these portfolios that account for all these different time horizons and all these different potential weather impacts, you don't you don't really need to try to do, you know, what the Bank of England was doing with the weather vane. You don't you just sort of accept that the weather vane is going to fail you at times. And that is part of good investing is that your portfolio should always have components of it that are potentially failing at times. You know, like Brian Portnoy is famous for saying that diversification is learning to hate part of your portfolio. And that's, that's the essence of it is that a good portfolio that is properly diversified, it should never move all in the, the same direction, especially in the short term. It should have all these 
components that are moving in different directions. And that's part of what makes investing really hard is that you look at things that are going down in value when lots of other things are doing well. And you say, I, this part of my portfolio is driving me crazy. I don't know why I own this thing. And you sell that and you buy. It's very easy for people to say, oh, let your winners run and sell your losers. And that's, you know, the reality is that good diversification involves owning all of that. It's part of why, I mean, index funds are beautiful in large part because that's what they do. They, a really diversified index fund like the S&P 500 works great because it's a systematic process by which the underlying index uh, basically it gets rid of its losers, but it owns losers for very, very long periods. But the kicker is that it doesn't ride its losers to zero. They have a systematic manner by which they kick things out and then they bring new entrants in. But in the process of doing that, they ride losers down all through the whole process. But the kicker with that is that they're diversified enough that they don't have sort of an asymmetric exposure to the losers. They have actually an asymmetric upside to the winners because they're constantly replacing losers with, with winners in the long run, but they still have lots of exposure to the losers in the, in the short term. So yeah, good portfolio management is about learning to hate big parts of your portfolio across time. And that's part of the behavioral challenge of managing a good portfolio. What a, what a wonderful way to end this episode. Learning how to hate your portfolio, uh, <laughs> but I it, yeah. it makes it makes a it makes about a makes a, a bunch of sense here. Colin, before we let you go, where can the audience learn more about you and Pragmatic Capitalism? Yeah, so I'm the chief investment officer at Discipline Funds, and we we manage you know these all duration style portfolios for people, low cost uh, sort of financial planning based approaches to investment management. But um, most people can find my writing and work either at the Discipline Funds website or um, Pragmatic Capitalism, which is pragcap.com, P-R-A-G-C-A-P. That's where we write our blog. And we've recently started doing uh, these three-minute macro videos where I'm trying to do sort of, you know, speaking of time, trying to produce these very concise macroeconomic lessons of sorts for people that help them rather than, you know, I know people don't like to read anymore. So people, people prefer to listen to podcasts and watch videos. So you can find us there or you know everything kind of through Pragcap. Yeah, and I highly recommend. I think the name of the channel is 3 Minute Money. Is that is that right? 3 3 Minute Macro. 3 Minute Macro. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I've checked out a few of the videos in there and you like take questions from your audience and and that's pretty cool and and of course also as a long-time reader of, of your blog on pragcap.com. So also highly I recommend that everyone checks that out. Colin, thank you so much for your time. I hope we can bring you on again sometime. Absolutely. I love being here. Thanks, Dig. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.